Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to continue to be in awe of the one who gave it all, to be in awe of the one who laid down his life for us. Lord, the text this morning is short, but it is truly massive. It's massive in its importance, in its power. Lord, I just feel the immensity of it, and I feel my inadequacy to fully comprehend it and to articulate it. So I pray now that you would send your spirit and power to cause the word to be made clear in all of our hearts, that Christ would be made much of in our hearts this morning for his glory alone. Amen. Well, what is the gospel? I realize that may seem like kind of a silly question to ask to a church that's made up of so many very mature Christians. But really, what is the gospel? There are few words in the evangelical reform Christian dialect that are used more often than the word gospel. But the problem, of course, is that with repetition, comes loss of real meaning. We assume that others know what we mean when we use the word gospel, and we assume that we know what we mean when we use the word gospel. Another problem is that we love the gospel around here so much that we've expanded on its meaning, and we even use the word gospel as a verb, like when we say we need to gospel each other. A uh, book the title of the book comes to mind by a local well-known author that's titled God is the Gospel. It's huge. And I'm not definitely against these kind of expanded uses of the word gospel. I'm one of those gospel fanatics that has used the word gospel as a verb. But we need to be careful that we also guard the gospel so that its clear meaning is not lost. So if I were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you say? How would you respond? Well, as the title of the sermon conveys, I'd like to consider two particular aspects of the gospel that really jumped out at me in the text as I was preparing. The priority of the gospel and the power of the gospel. I get the first point of the priority of the gospel from verse 3. Paul says, For I 
delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel message that Paul had delivered was of first importance. Now, consider the significance of this statement at this point in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul just finished 14 chapters writing about many very important things. He wrote about church unity, election, evangelism. He wrote about sexual immorality, about godly sexuality inside of marriage. He wrote on singleness and gave advice for widows. He wrote about Christian liberty and not sinning against your brother. He wrote about doing all things for the building up and for the glory of God. He gave instructions for how the church should function and instructions on communion. And of course, he also wrote extensively on the gifts of the Spirit and the priority of love. But after all that, in verse 1 of chapter 15, he starts with now. It's like he's saying, stop, pause, I really want to get your attention right now. Everything that I have written to you to this point is very important. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I did not waste any ink. You need to hear and heed everything that I've written to you. But what I'm about to remind you of right now, what I'm telling you right now, is of first importance. It was such a priority for Paul that everything was secondary to the gospel. So before I, we go any further, I'd like to consider what Paul's answer was to the question, what is the gospel? There's probably many different answers that we might give that would rightly address different aspects of the gospel, different effects or implications of the gospel. Oftentimes, we think of things like our adoption and our union with Christ And we may even think in some sense that the whole word of God is the gospel, which is true. But thankfully, Paul doesn't just remind us that the gospel is of first importance. He also articulates what it is. So look now again at the beginning of chapter 15, if you would. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you didn't really believe it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. Here is what the gospel is. That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so at the very heart of the gospel, the gospel in the most strict sense is simply this, Christ died for our sins. Paul most frequently referred to the gospel in terms of Christ's death, even just in the book of 1 Corinthians In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul refers to the gospel as the cross of Christ. And then in verse 18, he refers to it as the word of the cross. In chapter 1, verse 23, he says that we preach Christ crucified. 
And in chapter 2, verse 2, he said that he sought to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The death of Christ on our behalf is the gospel. That he was buried testifies that he did truly die. That he rose from the dead testified that his death had accomplished its purpose, that he had made atonement for the sins of his people. And though it's deeper than we could ever fully comprehend, though its power and implications really are limitless, the gospel is very simple. Christ died for our sins. That is truly good news. And so, though there are many trees in the forest, as it were, of the gospel, in all its greatness, with each tree representing a different aspect or implication of the gospel, there is one tree in particular that stands high above the rest, and that tree is the cross of Christ. And so though we may think of many different things when we think about the gospel, we must be careful not to lose the tree through the forest. Christ died for our sins. The cross is the gospel. So why is this gospel so important to us who have already been saved by it? Well, in a very real sense, everything hinges on the gospel. Without the gospel, we have no hope. But with the gospel, what we have is everything. Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not now also with him graciously give us all things. And so without the gospel, we have nothing. But with the gospel, we have everything. What in life could be more important than this? Really. Hopefully we would agree with Paul that the gospel is of first importance. Everything else he had written about wouldn't matter a lick apart from the truth that Christ died for our sins. Even more so, the gospel was the only hope of the Corinthians actually being able to live up to the things that he had written to them about. Which leads us now to the power of the gospel. Would you look at verses 1 and 2 again? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What does it mean that we are being saved by the gospel? The Greek word that's used here is used in a way that has a present and ongoing sense. It's not talking about what the gospel has done, but what the gospel is doing. The gospel itself is past tense, of course. Christ died for our sins. It is finished. But the effects or the power of the gospel is also ongoing in the believer's life. The word save simply means to deliver or to protect. I think it's fair to assume that most of us think about our salvation in the past tense. 
When we see the word save, we tend to think of our justification, which is absolutely not ongoing. We are saved from the punishment that is due for our sins. This aspect of being saved is completely past tense. At the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were saved. This salvation was completely accomplished when Christ died on the cross, and it is not ongoing. There was a cup, as it were, that was filled with the wrath, the anger, the punishment that our sins deserved. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he drank that cup dry. It is now and always will be empty. There is no wrath remaining for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen? We have been saved. Once for all, it is finished. This is what we commonly refer to as justification. And we love justification around here. And we should. To love justification is to love the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Therefore, we are justified. All of our sins are forgiven. And, the, and Paul, of all people, taught this doctrine of justification very clearly. So if it's by the death of Christ that we're justified or declared righteous, our sins forgiven, what does Paul mean when he says that the gospel is the means of our being saved, present and future, ongoing. Paul is not referring to justification here. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me? We'll come back to 1 Corinthians, but if you, if you have a Bible and if you would, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. To understand the dynamic of the gospel saving or delivering us from God's wrath, past tense, and also saving us in a present and an ongoing sense. I'd like to look at a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start with verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here we see the past tense death of Christ, or the past tense sense of our salvation in the fact that he once for all laid down his life, made the sacrifice, and then he sat down to show that it was finished. Then now if you would skip it down a couple verses to verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we see the past tense, finished work of the gospel in the phrase, he has perfected. It's not an ongoing process, praise God. But the ongoing sense of salvation is seen in the phrase, those who are being sanctified. So those who are justified begin this process of sanctification, which is growing in practical holiness. Sanctification is the process of us becoming what God has in Christ declared us to be. We know that Paul clearly teaches that we are justified by the gospel, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, he's wanting us to understand the effects of the gospel 
in, its context, in the context of our ongoing life as a believer. Yes, the gospel has delivered us from the penalty of sin, but it is also presently delivering us from the power of sin in our lives. In other words, the gospel is not only the means of our justification, but also the means and the power for our sanctification. And so we should not see the gospel simply the means by which we become a Christian. The gospel is not only the means by which we enter into the kingdom of God, it's also the means and the power for life in the kingdom of God. The gospel is not just the starting point for the Christian. And so we should not see the gospel as simply the means by which we become a Christian. So then what does it look like for the gospel to deliver us from the power of sin that remains in our life? How do we practically apply the gospel to our lives as those who have already been justified, who stand before God holy and blameless? So I'd like to spend the rest of our time by giving some feet to the gospel, so to speak. For today's message, I would summarize the application of the gospel to our lives in an ongoing way with three words. Confess, profess, and pursue. Confess, profess, and pursue. Confess, we start with confess. First John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is written to believers and has ongoing implications. Yes, we have already been justified and nothing can change that, but we need ongoing cleansing of our sin and it starts with confession. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. What's interesting here is that James doesn't say, Confess the sins that you've committed against each other, but simply an open-ended statement of confess your sins to one another. So the Bible calls us to confess our sins, but if we've already been forgiven and justified, why does it matter? What does it matter? Well, I'm sure that those here that have been a Christian for a while, you've spent some time reading the Bible, that you'd agree with me that God is just ever so slightly concerned with his glory. Amen? Well, consider this with me. Jesus went to the cross to literally bear the punishment for each and every sin of every believer. So for a believer to confess their sin is simply to acknowledge part of the depths of Christ's sacrifice. Confession of sin is the first step in giving Christ the glory that he deserves for taking the punishment for our sin. Another reason to confess your sins, especially to one another, is simply this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there is not much that is more humbling than to openly confess your sin to a brother or sister. And you might be wondering, 
Well, when do I confess to God, but also confess to one another? Well, I would say this. If you are having an ongoing battle with a particular sin, it may be time for you to confess that sin to a brother or sister in Christ. God may very well be withholding grace and power to overcome that sin until you humble yourself by confessing it to another. And I can tell you that there is tremendous grace that God pours out when we humble ourselves and confess our sin to another. Now, of course, it's not possible for us to confess every sin that we ever commit. We don't even know what they all are. And our justification is not altered by whether or not we confess every sin. It is not as though if we were to die before confessing a particular sin that we would risk losing our salvation. That concept is completely unbiblical. But we should all be in the general habit of confessing sin. As believers, the sin that we confess is canceled sin. So view confession as simply giving Christ the glory for what he has already done in paying for the sin. As believers, the sin that we confess is canceled sin. So view confession as simply giving Christ the glory for what he has already done. Of course, we cannot stop with just confession. It is extremely crucial that we follow confession with profession. Webster's Dictionary defines the word profess to mean to make an open declaration, to avow or acknowledge, to declare in strong terms, to proclaim. Would you turn now back back to 1 Corinthians with me? If you would. Uh, We're actually going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The question we need to answer now is, what is it that we are to profess? What is our profession in response to our confession? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The profession of the cross, the proclamation of the cross is the power of God to us who are being delivered from the power of sin. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the gospel in this way? Or do you see it simply as the starting point in your life, in your life with Christ? So we don't just confess our sins, but we also profess that Jesus died for those very sins. Profession is where confession meets faith. Confession says, I've sinned. And faith professes, yes. But that sin has been paid for. And in this way, the gospel becomes the power of God to put those sins to death. If we seek to put sin to death apart from the proclamation of the cross, we will find ourselves powerless 
to overcome sin. And we must be intentional with professing and embracing the cross with regards to the sins that we confess. If we don't, we will inevitably find ourselves fighting sin in our own strength. And I'm sure we all know where that leads. It's a downward spiral. We need to be intentional with professing that Christ died for our sins. Sometimes this isn't difficult. It's just a matter of being intentional and remembering to go to the cross with our sin. It's, Father, I've sinned. I I confess to you my pride. Forgive me. And thank you. Thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ bore the punishment for that sin. He had this sin on his shoulders when he hung on the cross, and he took all the punishment. Therefore, I do not stand before you condemned. Thank you, Jesus. But other times, professing and embracing the gospel is one of the hardest things in the world to do. There are times when everything in us and Satan himself tells us not to embrace the gospel. It's called condemnation. It usually comes when we've been battling a particular sin over and over, maybe for years, and we've just blown it again for the 200th time or maybe what seems like the 2,000th time. All sin is sin, but this is beyond acceptable. How many times can I possibly confess this sin and ask for forgiveness? If anyone knew, you may even wonder if you are really a Christian. You feel that you are not worthy of Christ you are feeling condemned. And when you are feeling that weight of condemnation for your sin, it would seem at the time that to embrace the gospel would simply be a cop-out. It would simply be to use the gospel as an excuse for your sin. And I just want to say here that if you know something of this inner battle, if you are currently in the middle of this battle of frustration with ongoing sin and feeling condemnation, take heart. That internal battle is actually evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. It is evidence that God's grace is at work in your heart, even though it may feel like just the opposite. But even more than ever, it is when we are feeling that strong weight of sin that we must go directly to the cross. We must profess and embrace the gospel by faith. If we don't, we will simply find another way to ease that weight on our conscience. Sometimes we ease our conscience by simply allowing enough time to pass to get some distance between us 
and that sin. Oftentimes, we seek to ease our conscience by committing to do better tomorrow. But to ease our conscience with something other than the gospel is simply to establish our own self-righteousness. To ease our conscience by something other than embracing the gospel is to, not, is to deny Christ the glory for the sacrifice that he made on behalf of that sin. And if we don't profess and embrace the gospel when we are feeling the weight of our sin, we are effectively denying the power that comes through that gospel. Not embracing the gospel when we are under the weight of sin is to deny the power that can actually deliver us from that sin. So when you feel the weight of sin, sin that has plagued you for years, let go of your self-righteousness and run to the cross. Don't wait. For it is at the cross that you will receive power to overcome that sin. If we will confess our sin and profess that Christ died for that sin, God is pleased to grant us power in our battle against that sin. A Scottish minister by the name of Horatius Bonar from the 1800s very eloquently speaks of the power of embracing the cross. And I don't know what it is about these guys from the 1800s, but somehow they can just articulate things where in a sentence they could say as much as I could in this whole sermon. So I just want to read this. It should be up on the screen. Thank you. All divine life and all precious fruits of it, pardon, peace, and holiness spring from the cross. If we would be holy, we must get to the cross and dwell there. Else, notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, praying, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute of those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Not only do we need to preach the gospel to ourselves in those times, but we need to preach the gospel to each other. When I am under the burden of my sin, I need my brothers and sisters to remind me of the reality that Christ died for my sins. This is what it means to gospel each other. When someone is convicted of their sin and they confess it, to gospel them is to remind them that Christ died for that sin and to remind them of the many implications of that death. That your standing before God is not changed because you've sinned. 
God saw every one of your sins and Christ paid for each one in full. Christ took the punishment and therefore, God, your Father is not angry with you, wanting to punish you, but he desires to give you grace and power through the cross as you humble yourself and recognize that it is only because of Christ that you stand before him righteous. Confess your sins. Profess the reality of Christ's death on your behalf and then pursue. Pursue holiness. And the order here is very important. Do not pursue growing in holiness before embracing the cross. Don't seek to overcome your particular sins without first embracing the fact that Christ fully paid the debt for those sins. Otherwise, our pursuit of holiness will simply be a self-righteous endeavor. We will seek to put our sin to death only to be puffed up with pride. Look at what I've accomplished. And if that is our posture in our pursuit of holiness, God himself must be opposed to us. Our pursuit of holiness should only be done out of thankfulness for the cross. Profess the gospel and then, by the power of that gospel, freely and wholeheartedly to pursue to become more like your Savior. And as with confessing and professing, we need each other in our pursuit of holiness as well. Sin is blinding. And we need others to help us to understand what's really at the heart of our sin. This is where biblical counseling comes in. We need others to give us wise counsel on practical means of growing in holiness. We need each other to help to keep us accountable and to give us specific encouragement for our particular battles. We cannot do this alone. But for us to help each other in that way, we have to be open first and even willing to confess our sins. And so, confess your sins. You are no less righteous when you confess your sin. You've already sinned. You are only less self-righteous. And by confessing your sin, you are positioning yourself in a place to receive grace and power to grow in true righteousness. Profess. Profess and embrace the gospel in light of your sin. Consider that Christ paid for that sin. Give him the glory and the thanks for the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. Be in awe and worship him for the amazing sacrifice of the cross. And then, out of thankfulness for the cross, pursue with joy and with the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ to become more like your wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father.
I pray that this gospel would be for us what it was for the Apostle Paul of first importance. And more than that, I pray that the gospel wouldn't be something that we just know and we realize is important, but that the gospel would be the source of power in our life. Teach us what it means, what it looks like to apply the gospel to our lives and help us to apply the gospel with each other for our building up and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.